we're going to start the final session of the day. Um, and it is my honor to introduce a uh, distinguished fellow at ORF America, Bruce McConnell. Uh, Bruce was previously the president of the East West Institute in New York um, and served as deputy undersecretary for cybersecurity at the US Department of Homeland Security. And we're really honored to have him with us today to moderate this final session. Thank you so much, Sharon. It's great to be here and to see all of you. Thanks for coming out. As you know, this uh, session is going to be rebroadcast tomorrow in Delhi, so we'll turn to some of the issues uh, related uh, to that aspect of that part of the world in uh, a little while. But we have an excellent uh, group here, and it's just going to be a conversation, so uh, no boring opening statements uh, from our uh, panelists. But let me introduce them all to you first, and then we'll, we'll get underway. And I, I'm, I know these people, but I want to make sure I get their titles right. Uh, so at, my, at the other end uh, is uh, Christopher DeRussia, and he is the Federal Chief Information uh, Security Officer at the Office of Management and Budget. And he has another hat, the Deputy National Cyber Director for Federal at the White House. Uh, sitting next to him is Betsy Chaco, Associate Director for International Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, that's CISA, and that's at the Department of Homeland Security. And finally, Alina Noor, who is Director of Political Security Affairs and the Deputy Director of the Washington Office of the Asia Society Policy Institute here in Washington. So um, let's get into it. And um, I'm just going to ask them some questions. And after we've talked for a while, we'll give you the chance to ask questions also. So uh, let's start with you, Chris. You have the kind of two hats you wear. Uh, how do you um, balance those? And, and what are your priorities? What's your, what does your day or week look like? And how does that work? Tell us your, what happens with you. Yeah. What, what do my titles mean? Um, <laughs> so yeah, I have lots of hats. Um, Bruce named a couple of them. I, I like to say that those two are really intended as one job and two offices. We just created this uh, past year, the Office of the National Cyber Director within the White House structure. And it's a new unit building itself out. Um, and, you know, there's some common authorities shared in different places in the White House, including Office of Management Budget, which I was appointed as the federal CISO. We thought it made a lot of sense to have one person managing kind of those portfolios as the new office grew out. And really what the job is, is um, setting strategy and policy direction, uh, doing oversight and governance, performance management, ensuring resources aligned to all of that. Uh, lots of those activities. And it's a lot because there's you know hundreds of federal agencies and we're really focused on the federal civilian. Um, to describe my daily responsibilities, there's lots that come with those, um, but I have you know a few other hats. Um, I also chair the um, federal CISO council. And so that's the CISOs, the chief information security officer across the agencies. So we're having one coordinated information sharing way forward. Um, I also chair what is called the Federal Acquisition Security Council. That's a group of all the federal agencies that have authorities in managing supply chain security, and we try to have one consolidated approach there. And then I sit on a couple of boards, um, the Technology Modernization Fund Board, which is a, a fund that's intended to inject capital into um, you know, agency investments at a faster time frame than the annual budget process. And finally, I sit on the Cyber Safety Review Board, which is a new thing that we're, we're doing to really inspect big incidents and events, try to learn lessons back as a public good. So those are, Bruce, you know, the hats I wear and lots of activities. Happy to take questions on that later as well. Well, what you're talking about, though, is a lot of coordination. So, right. you know, you that's that's the ideal situation is when the White House is uh, and its various offices are 
are trying to get the federal agencies to work together. Uh, but of course, uh, that's, uh, that's challenging. It's always challenging for the center to coordinate the uh, operating agencies. And, and we have Betsy here, who is uh, from the premier cybersecurity operating agency on the civilian side. DHS, you all know the history of the formation of uh, CISA, uh, which was uh, used to be part of the secretary's office and now is its own uh, own agency within DHS. So uh, tell us about that. Tell us about your um, your evolution and also about how you get involved in uh, in an in international uh, direction of things. Well, Bruce, first, thank you. A big thank you to ORF for the kind invitation. Um, and as Bruce noted, uh, I'm with the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Agency, and we were built off an HQ element. And I just want to take a moment and just honor Bruce and Chris and everyone who helped shape uh, CISA to where it is. Um, so we are the youngest federal agency in the U.S. government. Our mission is to understand, manage, and reduce risks to cyber and critical infrastructure. The mission, it looks and sounds simple, but it is very complex. We are responsible for everything from electricity in your homes to water in your pipes to gas. Um, and then, and the most, and it's important for us not, and it's very important for us to work with everyone. Partnerships is key and core to what we do. And I have the humble privilege of leading the international efforts at CISA. And I also have, hands down in my opinion, the best team, uh, which is this is an international team. Um, so what day looks like for me is it's revolt a day and a week. What, looks, what it looks like for me is that it revolves around four priorities. First, advancing operational cooperation with international partners. Second, building partner capacity. Third, engaging on stakeholder engagement and strengthening our relationships. And lastly, helping shape the ecosystems. So what does this look like in a day-to-day? -day? So the first, on advancing operational collaboration with our international partners, it's really about understanding what our partners are seeing. Every country has a very unique set of eyes and ears. We want to learn and see what other our partners are seeing. We very much do this through the compu uh, computer emergency response teams. It's called CERTs, um, and every country has a CERT. In the U.S., we are the national CERT. Um, and so we very much work with all sorts around the world. For example, we work very closely with CERT India um, on day-to-day, -day sharing information, doing technical exchanges. Moving on to our second goal, which is capacity building. On any day-to-day, -day, you will see myself and my team working with partners to figure out how do we build capacity for, uh, for our countries. Right now, we're in the midst of uh, planning for our fifth U.S. Japan ICS Cyber Week happening in October. So we will bring together partners to help put, put together an ICS, Industrial Control Systems, uh, capacity building training. And the, uh, the third and fourth goal is how do we exchange and share information more? How do we learn from each other? So definitely on the um, engagement stakeholder, we do expert to expert exchanges. We're working with our partners in Asia, sharing how do they do elections? How do they understand national critical functions? How are they thinking of cybersecurity? And then the last goal is um, engaging on policy discussions, just like I'm doing here today. How can we have conversations on policy and how do we advance cybersecurity in the arenas? Great, thank you so much. So uh, we've now heard a couple of uh, US perspectives here. And uh, to uh, kind of keep things balanced, uh, we are honored to have uh, Alina Noor, who I worked with on the Global Commission for the Stability of Cyberspace. She was a commissioner there. And uh, we came up with a lot of uh, recommendations for how states should behave 
uh, in cyberspace uh, uh, for responsible behavior in cyberspace. So um, Alina, since then, has now uh, moved to the uh, Asia Society. Tell us, tell us what you're working on. Yeah, so I guess I'm the sore thumb on this panel. I'm, I'm not with government. I don't have all these illustrious uh, capacities that I'm juggling at the same time. But I am working. Thank you, Bruce, for asking. I'm working on this project um, related to Southeast Asia and technology. So I'm from Southeast Asia. I'm from Malaysia. And everybody in this town knows there's a lot of focus on all things US, all things China. And often, the countries in the middle kind of get uh, forgotten or overlooked. And so I see myself as trying to amplify some of these forgotten voices. Um, so with this particular project, I'm working on AI ethics and data protection and how they're being approached um, by five different countries in Southeast Asia. So crunch time right now, trying to write up the report. Um, so stay tuned. <laughs> That's great. So we're, uh, we're going to lapse now more, get move more into the international uh, dimension of uh, cybersecurity. Inter cybersecurity is an international activity. It's an international problem, and it doesn't respect boundaries. Uh, and so, uh, Chris, you've, you've been uh, in the federal government, but before uh, this current uh, assignment, you were in state government, so you've seen uh, the world at that level. Um, now you're at the national government, and, and tell us about your uh, perspective on, on international cyber and how does that fit into U.S. priorities? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, Betsy covered a lot of it. It's a very helpful rundown of kind of the priorities and the way that you, you think about all of the engagements. Um, so I, I completely agree with, with that framework. Um, where, where it's really helpful in my current role, you know, sitting managing um, all of these hundreds of uh, federal agencies and ensuring that we have a common baseline and we're, we're doing things um, the right way. You know, you, when you stop and think about it, you want to benchmark your progress. And that's one of the ways you know if you're doing well. It's kind of hard to benchmark when you got a job like this unless you look to another country. And I think one of the things that is really helpful is having engagements with people who hold a similar job uh, in other countries. It's something that you know, I, I try to be intentional about doing. And you know, I just find that, you know, we all have different cultures. We're all organized very differently to solve these problems. Um, there, there's different authorities given to different types of agencies. Some run uh, the operation more from kind of an intelligence lens and some from public facing civilian lens like we do. You know, you all are familiar with this dynamic, but what you'll find is when you have something like a Log4j, a solar winds event, or even right now with um, you know, higher geopolitical tensions um, and sort of an uncertain uh, path and what could happen, you tend to think about and react to that in similar ways and different ways. And so I think it's really helpful to validate some of the approaches, learn from what uh, others are doing, and then try to emulate that where it makes sense. And, and for those reasons, we're very, very active right now and not just engaging critical infrastructure and in all of this, which CIS is doing a fantastic job of briefing critical infrastructure partners on the risks. But, but really also engaging our international partners. So, you know, that brings up for me a question about uh, people look at things the same way, but they also look at them differently. You've been talking, uh, Betsy, about, uh, and to, a lot of international partners at the level of certs and uh, where um, people have different, may have different uh, views of what is critical infrastructure. Uh, is that... Is that um, mostly a matter of terminology or are there really differences in priorities? And, and does that break down depending on, you know, if it's a, 
highly industrialized country versus a more rural country. Can you give us some perspective on that? Yeah, definitely. I want to echo Chris's comment. I think what he noted here was very important. It's countries are facing the same issues we are facing here in the in the U.S., right? So it goes to if you're if you're seeing the same issues and we also have the same issues, so it's important for us to be collective and help mitigate those risks together. Um, and to your question, Bruce, like critical infrastructure, that's one of the questions on capacity, build, capacity building we get a lot. Because it's not that we see a difference in terminology, it's because everyone wants to understand how we identify critical infrastructure and also it's important for us to hear how they identify. And we're also hearing from a lot of partners of how do you, how do you identify critical infrastructure? So there's a range of um, spectrum there when it comes to sharing sharing our methodology, sharing our understanding and how we approach these issues. Um, and just to, just to address why is international engagement important, that is my day-to-day -day job, um, but we are a domestic cyber, we are a domestic agency, we are a domestic cyber agency, but we understand what happens overseas impacts our homeland and vice versa. We saw that with um, the motor vessel Evergreen and Suez Canal, right? This is not just on the cyber, or and it's both on cyber and physical, right? What happens there impacts our supply chains. Right now we're seeing this with Ukraine, right? We understand very importantly that what happens overseas impacts the homeland and vice versa. So we have to share the information across. We also understand that there's a network of like-minded partners and it's important for us to come together and help put the collective defense together. And then lastly, we also know that countries are trying to navigate the sphere, that they understand that, hey, we want to make sure we're able to give options that are secure and economically viable. So right now we have this opportunity and a window for us to work together. Um, and as I noted earlier, that's the reason why every single day I'm, we're working towards advancing operational cooperation with partners, building partner capacity, shaping the ecosystem, and continuing to exchange our, um, continue to exchange our approaches. So, uh, so you're hearing, we're hearing again, you know, that uh, the interacting with international partners is important to the U.S. Uh, what's your perspective on this? Are, is the U.S. A, a preferred partner for some of these things, or are there other places that uh, that you think people are equally interested in hearing from, uh, particularly with a Southeast Asian uh, perspective? What's the what's the kind of look like from there? So I think the U.S. is definitely one of the preferred partners in the region, um, and there's a lot of work and cooperation taking place um, with different countries in the region. But I think, Betsy, you made a really good point about this definition of critical infrastructure, because there's a lot of uncertainty still, particularly in the less developed uh, economies in Southeast Asia, about how to even define critical infrastructure. And countries are looking to other countries in the region, but also abroad, to try to figure that out. Um, things like language matters, right? Um, in, in Malaysia, so we translate cybersecurity as keselamatan cyber, but keselamatan also has a connotation of safety. So the ambit of cybersecurity suddenly gets very broad in countries that don't have the exact same translations or interpretations of a word that we, uh, who speak English quite uh, comfortably, are familiar with. And so these notions, I think, permeate through capacity building initiatives because when negotiating uh, on capacity building with partners, there's the issue of language, there's also the issue of resources, and there's the issue of um, just the ability to absorb all the assistance and support that's being offered. And so I'm sure you know this very well, Betsy. Um, but I think in Southeast Asia, Countries are looking not only to the U.S., but also to 
countries uh, the US would consider adversaries for help um, and support because these countries plug gaps in different ways that um, no one particular provider can. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's really interesting about the, that cyber safety is part of cybersecurity. Uh, the other thing that's becoming part of cybersecurity is uh, disinformation. And a lot of, I think, uh, cyber people find themselves pulled into conversations about how do you deal with disinformation and the impact of social media platforms. Uh, and certainly overseas where the social media platforms are uh, run by uh, U.S. companies in, in many ways, uh, there's a whole political dynamic around that. So we, we might come back to that point, but I wanted to ask uh, the panelists uh, about, uh, Betsy, you mentioned uh, this and Chris also uh, in a, indirectly uh, you know, increased geopolitical tension. So how has uh, Ukraine's situation affected, uh, affected what your priorities are and, and just the rhythm of your work? You wanna start? Yeah, um, well, it, it definitely has. And I think the first point here, Bruce, is uh, this is kind of a new norm, a new reality. Uh, mm -hmm. Anytime you've got a geopolitical conflict that um, results for, for your nation in uh, a threat of capability and intent, in this case, potential intent, but high potential, right? That is the U.S. assessment. And, you know, I, it, it changes the dynamic because there is actual belief that um, these actors have the ability to affect critical infrastructure here in the United States. And that is why we've had led by CISA, what we call a shields up effort uh, to really make sure that there's information is being shared um, and everybody's kind of at a high state of readiness uh, for some potentiality. And, you know, I think that's fairly new. <laughs> uh, it's hard for some folks to really kind of digest too. Um, it's sort of a new concept that could have that much uh, reaching effect. Um, but in a level of conflict that is far below some other places it could go. And so it just makes it a lot more realistic that it could be sort of the next phase um, of an event like like we're facing right now. So that is that is new. Um, and, it, you know, we take it very seriously. Um, well, there isn't necessarily direct information for a high level of threat on federal government assets. You know, we own, run and operate critical infrastructure. Right. We have a lot of sensitive data control systems. We, we think about what the federal government does. Right. And what these hundred agencies like, like are. the uh, air traffic control system, right? Air traffic exactly control right. system, satellites, the uh, Federal uh, Reserve, right. Control systems in space. I mean, you, there's a long list of things that you IRS, uh, you know, a lot of attractive targets for our government. Right. So, you know, we have to take it seriously. We do. Um, we've kind of been doing all the same measures that we've been asking our critical infrastructure partners to take or taking um, ourselves. So yeah, uh, it has been a, a, a pretty big insertion into our daily activities per se, and just mm -hmm. continues to be. Like there's mm -hmm. no change in posture. Yeah, well, Betsy, we were talking about this a little bit uh, before the panel started uh, about, you know, you're out there uh, kind of um, ringing the alarm, if you will, and getting people to put the shields up, as Chris said. Uh, so how's that going in terms of a uh, couple of aspects of it, maybe uh, one is, uh, you know, big companies have more capacity to deal with this. So how are you thinking about uh, smaller companies and, and, you know, nonprofits, universities, et cetera? And then uh, another kind of angle on this is how about fatigue? Are we, are people uh, able to, you know, we're all tired 
disgusted with masks, right? We have mask fatigue. So uh, this is another kind of shields up, right? Uh, how's that going? Yeah, no, just to echo everything that Chris is saying, you know, our director has definitely uh, said, you know, and given us guidance, preparation, not panic. And that's why it's important to have our shields up, you know, and we, since since late 2021, we've been out there doing briefings to our critical infrastructure partners, classified and unclassified, making sure that they're getting the information. We established this Shields Up webpage to provide all the alerts, all the advisories we know. We're offering up services to the small, medium businesses, to every single organization so they can take a heightened sense of uh, cybersecurity and be able to also um, implement those measures. Um, definitely to your point, fatigue, we, we, we hear it. And we are continuing to, you know, beat that drum, continue to keep your shields up. And the things that we're asking are also basic cyber hygiene measures. So overall, we're just asking everyone to, you know, shields up, help us uh, increase the cybersecurity, uh, continue to increase and strengthen the cybersecurity posture. Yeah. So these are things they uh, should have been doing any anyway. And as they say, never waste a good crisis. Right. So that's what you're that's what you're doing now. Yeah. Um, what's it, you know, sort of moving a little bit outside the realm of cybersecurity, but uh, Elena, you and I have talked many times about how uh, smaller countries, particularly in Southeast Asia, uh, sometimes find themselves caught uh, between uh, the U.S. and China, not wanting to pick sides. Uh, so uh, how's the Russia angle here uh, playing? What's your sense of that in cyber or otherwise? Yeah, I think the first thing to remember is that Southeast Asia is still emerging from the throes of COVID-19, right? So there's right. a lot of preoccupation yeah. on trying to revive the economy, just trying to get things running again. It's not quite business as usual yet um, in the way that we used to here in the United States. So that's the big overarching context. And then throwing Russia-Ukraine, um, a lot of Southeast Asian countries don't have the same kinds of antagonistic relationships uh, with Russia um, that the U.S. does. And so there isn't this sense that shields need to be up, though there is this awareness that, of course, uh, there are systems, platforms, and infrastructure that are always vulnerable to attacks or compromises. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, uh, finally, it's just a matter of capacity again and resources. Because of this emergence very slow emergence out of the pandemic, other priorities taking precedence. Um, there's a sense that in many countries that what's going on in Russia, let alone in the virtual space with regards to Ukraine and Russia, are a little distant. Um, there is the risk of disinformation, which I think countries like Indonesia and Singapore are trying to grapple with. Um, there are many anecdotes about Russian disinformation that are being spread on social media and, you know, the sentiment on the ground does not always accord with the government position sometimes. So that's something domestic governments also have to contend with mm -hmm. in Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, this uh, session will be rebroadcast uh, tomorrow. In, in Delhi, uh, so the, we expect there at the Ricina Conference, which is a very high level ministerial and sometimes head of state level conference, uh, that uh, there will be quite a few people there from South Asia. So what advice uh, would you have uh, panelists about uh, how, the, how uh, people from that part of the world can, can cooperate better on cybersecurity? You wanna start? Yeah, well, look, um, 
we, we've had good cooperation for a while, but I really think it's time to get into this next phase of really making it about tangible things. You know, let me give you an example. We issued an executive order, 14028, call it the cyber executive order last year. It issued a whole lot of action, all going after specific root causes that we've they've been building over the years. And we kind of took them all on and it's been a busy year as a result. But some of those have, have led to deliverables that we think are useful products and goods that be, can be used by folks anywhere in the country, in different countries, there's principles and things in there. And, and that's because we crowdsource them. Our zero trust strategy, we, we got hundreds of inputs um, from different companies, uh, experts, people from labs, academics. I mean, we crowdsourced brain power of expertise in zero trust and we built a document collaboratively and then published that publicly. You know, it's a decent roadmap. It's a it's a starting point if you're if you're you know looking for that. It's a place you can look. We did some other things like that where even just kind of when you're doing an investigation, you you need to understand how do you think about prioritizing your log retention because it's really expensive to to store everything. But so where do you start and how do you think about that? We you know collaboration with CISA, we put out a document that says here's a maturity model for the first time on how to do that, how to think about that. And people can take these anywhere and grab them and build off of them, make them better, keep going. I think that's where we've got to get. I mean, we know what the problem is. You know, sharing sort of cybersecurity's real problem stories is like really not interesting anymore. It's 2022. <laughs> you know, solve it, share how you solved it, and then see if there's applicable lessons and then just keep building that. And that's where we're trying to go. We're trying to be leaders on that. Um, but, you know, I think everybody can be a leader on that. No, I couldn't agree with you more on your last point. Uh, I, uh, when I was working with uh, you guys at DHS uh, 10 years ago, it was like uh, I would gauge the maturity of the conversation based on how much time was spent admiring the problem <laughs> and how much spent time was spent uh, solving the problem. So we're, we've definitely made progress in that area. Betsy, you mentioned earlier that uh, you have great relations with uh, CERT India. And so uh, what other advice do you have for India and its neighbors uh, in this in this uh, realm as we go into the uh, next uh, few years? Awesome. Well, first I want to say thank you, um, because in the most unprecedented times, in the most isolating times, we were able to harness technology and still continue our partnerships with our uh, countries in Asia. Um, and we've done more than we ever could have. Um, I have been in so many Zoom and webinars at from 6 a.m. to at 10 p.m. at night, and it's just been an absolute honor and a delight to partner with um, our colleagues in Asia. Um, second, to absolutely to Chris's point, um, when you have solutions, please share it and we will also do it vice versa we look forward because once again the same problems we have here are the same problems that you are seeing and the same solutions that work there work for us too so continue and then lastly uh, please join us as we continue our effort on shields up so global global shields up huh there you go. yeah there you go okay good and your your advice well, I don't know about advice it's more a request really mm. uh, we've been talking a lot about hard security, right? So it's a critical infrastructure and all that. I think there's a lot of space for policy consideration um, in terms of global norms that we worked on in mm -hmm. the commission. Um, for a lot of countries that find themselves squeezed between these intens intensifying uh, tensions between the United States and China, I think there's potential to cooperate, to coordinate, and to 
potentially align positions in a way that will provide more wiggle room, more policy space and maneuverability for a lot of these countries to find different ways um, to forge their futures ahead in cyberspace. A lot of developing countries are just trying to keep up with this rat race, this technological rat race, and don't really have uh, the opportunity to just sit back and understand what it is that their country or community needs based on their historical and developmental context. A lot of models are being viewed, sometimes copied and pasted, unfortunately. But I think if we can kind of work together with giants like India to try to preserve that space in order for us to shape our own futures, separate from what's already been created, I think that would be uh, super and could potentially unlock uh, a more interesting future. So that, can I drill down on that point a little bit, I think, because it sounds like you're sort of discussing a kind of a G77 for cyber or something like that, uh, and uh, or non-aligned, or is that where yeah, you're going with I, this? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there have been, I've seen papers written, Latha Reddy uh, co-wrote a paper on whether there's a non-aligned movement mm -hmm. um, that might be available in cyberspace. And I think it's definitely a potential worth exploring. Uh, I know these terms, G77, uh, NAM and all of these are all passé in a way, but, right. but I think we have to step back and question why these terms have become passé and whether we can rejuvenate them in different ways for the technological age. Thank you for tuning in to Policy Pod, the ORF podcast. Please subscribe to our channel for updates on upcoming episodes.